You're listening to the Portland Diamond Project podcast. Shut up! You're killing me, Smalls. Working to bring Major League Baseball and a new ballpark to Portland. How can you not be romantic about baseball? People will come, Ray. People will most definitely come. Welcome into another edition of the Portland Diamond Project podcast. I'm Mike Barrett, Managing Director of PDP, and for this week's podcast, I join Justin Myers from NBC Sports Northwest on their weekly podcast, The Bridge, to talk MLB to PDX, some fun stories from my past, as well as some stories from my time with the Trailblazers. So let's get to it. This is The Bridge Podcast with Justin Myers. On to your butt. Brought to you by Toyota. I like turtles. A three-pointer for the game. This is an NBC Sports Northwest podcast. It is a tasty burger. Wherever you may be, this is Bill Shinley, Rip City. Welcome to this week's edition of the Bridge Podcast. This week we have got Mike Barrett joining me and uh, a lot of fun stuff that we went over. We talked about how he grew up uh, in Albany going to Oregon State and then covering Oregon football and being on both sides of the Civil War rivalry. Of course, his time with the Blazers. And we spend a good chunk of time talking about MLB to PDX and the Portland Diamond Project, how it started, how the concept got going, and kind of where we are right now in the timeline of trying to get a baseball team here to Portland. So here is this week's guest, Mike Barrett. Welcome into this week's edition of the Bridge Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Myers. Very excited to be joined by Mike Barrett, Portland Diamond Project, MLB to PDX, uh, all sorts of, of media here in the great Northwest. Mike, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Isn't that amazing? I mean, you start saying that, but you and I were talking before we started and, you know, paths cross and you, you were in Eugene and then Portland and I was in radio and then uh, Ducks and then Blazers and then now this and... Uh, I know it's kind of cliche, but the years they they fly by. It's true. Well, and it was weird, like you mentioned right before we got going. I, I was surprised. I was thinking about this all day today. How you and I really have. I don't think we've ever met. No. I think we probably have maybe seen each other, may have been at a game, but we've covered the exact same teams. Exactly. But it's just weird how how kind of the the media world works. How you just kind of get in these in these revolving worlds and universes. But no, was, I'm very excited to meet you. Very excited Thanks. to talk to you. Got a lot of fun stuff that I want to get to. Um, I like to start every uh, every show off with uh, where you grew up. I grew up, well, actually I was born in Idaho, lived in western Idaho. My dad was a basketball coach, and then he got a job at West Albany High School. Um, I think I was probably seven, and we moved to Albany, and then that's where I grew up and played for him, and he was still a coach there, and played baseball, and then I went on to Oregon State, uh, with the intent of playing baseball, and shoulder was falling apart. I was a fastball pitcher that had very little else, and once that disappeared, I disappeared. So went from there to working uh, for the Oregon State uh, Sports Information Department, which was fantastic, great memories down there. We were down there last week for a Knights game, and uh, I threw out the first pitch, and it was really— Shoulder still holding up. Yeah, you know— Still holding funny, up for one more. The funny part is, is we were in Eugene the night before at an Emeralds game, Emerald Hops game, and Craig Cheek was there, my partner, and— 
and Craig was like, and Craig played at Washington State. And so we're like, we got to go warm up, man. We haven't thrown the ball. And so we're back behind the bullpen, and we're both, <laughs> after about 10 minutes, we're both grabbing our shoulders going, my gosh, because we both had our share of injuries. So, um, but it was a blessing, and, and that's kind of got me into the media world. And I went from there and, and came to Portland and got pretty fortunate pretty quickly um, after calling some high school games out at KUIK in Hillsboro for like 40 bucks a game, which then was like, wow. Um, got the job at KXL where you also were. Yes. Um, and started doing morning sports in 92 and doing duck football. And I was there until 99. So I grew up kind of in the Valley, mid Valley in Albany, but then kind of came right to here. And I think for, and you could probably say this too, being Winston and Eugene and all that to, to be able to be in this business and really not have had to go traveling all over. Cause yeah. a lot of guys do multiple stops. That's pretty fortunate. And really with, you know, I always looked at that blazer wise is to be able to because all the guys I used to work with my peers around the NBA they'd all kind of hopped around states and cities and teams and I really never had to do that so it was really fortunate well here's what's interesting to me because everybody always asked me when I was growing up did I always want to be in radio did I always want to do sports talk radio I was like no I was going to be it's me the first baseman for the Atlanta Braves. Of that, course. That's yes. what I was going yes. to be. And then all of a sudden I played junior college baseball and saw a guy throwing 93 and going, well, I can't hit that. Right. So I better find something else to do. Were you always growing up interested in, in broadcasting? Was it always an, an interest or, or were you kind of like me, just kind of, I want to stay in sports, but yeah. my fastball is gone. I knew it would be in sports somewhere, but you know, my mom, I think she still has them has tapes of me calling games as a little kid, fake games that weren't happening, you know, just making them up in my head. So I don't know. I Sometimes I say, no, it wasn't like the plan. But then I look back and I go, gosh, maybe it was. I um, So I always used to do that. And then, of course, being around my dad's teams all those years, you know, I was always at his practices. That was my babysitter. I would get dropped off at the gym and come home with him at 730 or 8 and so being around it as much as I was, I knew it would be somewhere in sports. But when I was at when the baseball career ended and I started working around the media at Oregon State and I was there the same time Gary Payton was there. So we had a lot of national media around all the time. I got to know a lot of guys and working with sports information, you're kind of you set the press table and you always meet the guys. And I knew a lot of the guys. I maybe thought writer first because that always came really easily to me. And my degree was in journalism. So. I thought maybe a writer, and then, I don't know, I started doing, I actually did some high school games on KBVR, the, the campus TV station, mm-hmm. and did a couple of baseball games on the radio because nobody else was doing them, and we thought, yeah, let's do those, and then came up here, though, but never really with that intent after that, and then somebody actually came to me and said, you've done this stuff, can you do some high school games? Yeah, sure. So I started doing those, and then... I got the job at KXL, which I didn't deserve. I didn't have any experience. I just happened to hit it off with the program director at the time, and I well, here's, here's the thing. I would work for nothing. So no, none of us deserved our first real break. It, 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 it's all about oh, that guy likes me. Uh, I charmed my way in there. Exactly. It's, it, it's how every none of us really deserved. And my it. rehearsal was. I still remember this. I remember calling my dad and saying, I got in like a third interview with these guys, and he said, and and not nothing against my dad, but he kind of goes, really? You think you? I mean, in his mind going, you don't really think you're going to get this job. And I said, yeah, maybe. 
And I went in the studio in the afternoon. They threw me on the news. I just, hey, do sports. Here's two minutes. You know, they used to have the 15 and 45 mm -hmm. for sports, and maybe they still do. I don't know. Um, they just threw me on. Like, uh, I think I did three hours. So I did uh, all the little sports hits during their news clock and got a call back and said, hey, you want the job? It doesn't pay very much, but here you go. And I said, sure, that, that's all the money in the world to me. So that's kind of how it started. So tell me about your the first game you called. So you're so you're out you not the college, not the games at the college station, but you get a radio station out in Hillsboro. Yeah. And you start calling high school games yeah. out there. The the first couple, hmm. tell me about that experience. Cause because I've also called high school football games. And, and they're, they're was, very interesting. And this was more basketball in the early gotcha. times. And there was some girls' games I called and some boys' games. And I ended up doing a – I did a really good playoff game one time. At, <laughs> this is the terrible part of the story that I've never even really thought about. So I go to do my first playoff game. I think it was at Tigard High School and somebody else. And then you drove the van with the KUIK, and you had to use the Marty. So old radio guys know what a Marty is. It's basically just this box that you turn on in the back of the van and you hoist up this antenna and it's got to be pointed toward Hillsboro or they're not going to get it. So I do all that. I've got the whole thing way up with the trees and I forget to connect the Marty cord to this little box. It's like a coax cable. And I forgot to, and they're, and they're calling me on some other phone. We didn't have cell phones. Oh yeah, I guess we maybe did. Um, and they're saying, we don't hear you. And I'm like, I, we're in the second quarter, man. It's a great game. And I'm mad at them. You guys, man, I, we called this great game, and I go down to the van, and I realize I never plugged the cord in, so it was all my fault. But uh, that, that's not really the answer to your question. But first impressions, first games, I remember they were all out there on the west side. Um, first game in college was an Oregon State baseball game that we did on the TV station, which was pretty cool for, for students at that time. And then we did a few high school games at then Parker Stadium in Corvallis. Um, I think I still have some of those tapes floating around. I got to find that stuff. And of course, it's all on three quarter and VHS and probably melted away because I never got it transferred. I always found it funny I, doing high school football games because for some of the newer high schools now, they have really nice press boxes. Yeah. I've been up there and I'm like, whoa, what, what is this? But um, back in the, the mid 2000s when I was doing it, you would get a lot of these old grandstands that were probably built by donors, yeah, uh, by with donated lumber, um, especially there in in the Willamette Valley, and it's full of a PA guy, and and each coach gets up there, and there's no so I've called a lot of games from the stands, yep. right next to the parents when their kid had a penalty, and I called him out on the radio and got dirty looks oh, yeah. from his mom who's sitting right next to me. Well, and we did when I don't know if people here remember when Paul Allen started the Action Sports Cable Network which got no carriage. It was only on the coast. It was on charter. And the big problem was it, it couldn't get carriage. So we did a high school game of the week. And this is when I was doing Blazers, but we decided to do some high school game of the week. And we had that same issue where we would go to some places and we would have this nice five, six camera show with a little TV truck and nobody was seeing it except for somebody on the coast. But we did a lot of those games in a lot of those little, some in Vancouver and Battleground. and But those were fun, you know? I mean sitting out in the stands at the Kiggins Bowl getting rained on sideways because they don't have a press box, or they didn't then for us. But, no, those were all, those were all good times. And you're, you're lucky you're making me remember them. Yes, of course. And, <laughs> I think I got handed a and, team And the numbers would time. never be right, so you'd be calling the kid <laughs> wrong the whole game, and finally a parent would come and say, that's my son. I said, well, it says here he's 14. No, he's number 21. That happened all the time. 
So, so now as you, you start moving along and, and you went from, from doing some high school games and you went from Hillsboro into here, work for KXL mm -hmm. and, and start calling uh, Oregon games as a sideline reporter. Mm -hmm. when, when did that start? How'd that come about? 92. We were the station of the Ducks in Portland. And um, so I remember that first game was at Colorado State. I remember that. But it was a cool time to be down there. And... Um, you know, as they really started to build and, and Rich Brooks was starting to build, you know, he did it a lot through defense then. And, and when, they, when they got Danny O'Neill and had their Rose Bowl run in 95, it was great to be a part of that, great to be at the Rose Bowl. Those were really, those were really fun days. And did a Rose Bowl, did a Aloha. I think we did a, yeah, I think an Aloha Bowl. Did a freedom, two, I think a Freedom Bowl Freedom in Bowl, Freedom Bowl in 92, did two Sun Bowls. Uh, yeah, so that, those were that was a really fun time. And in fact, the you know the big the mo one of the most famous moments is the Kenny Wheaton pick. And I was down in Eugene last week, and I was with Steve Mims of the Register Guard, and he was doing a story on the Portland Diamond Project. And you walk into the Register Guard offices, and here is this huge photo on the wall uh, of the pick. And I'm in that photo. I'm prominently in that photo. I'm the guy. So if you have it at home. Look at it. And I'm the guy jumping up in the air. I got the microphone in my hand. I'm right behind Wheaton. And, of course, I went to Oregon State. So I've caught all kinds of crap for years about celebrating a huge duck moment. Not only celebrating it, I'm, like, in it forever now. So they're doing the 25th anniversary, which blows my mind that it's been that long, of that pick. So they're going to do a story. So they interviewed me for that. And I, I didn't expect that that day. But to see the picture again and think about all that and working with Jerry and Jorgie and those guys down there, that was a blast. We had a... We had a great time. Uh, it was really funny to me because I, so I grew up listening to your guys' broadcast because, again, it, it's kind of weird to say, like, back then, you maybe got two or three games on TV. Yeah. Maybe. So and radio then, was a huge part of and, it. And radio would be the, the way you would listen to the games, and, and I grew up listening to those broadcasts. And then when I got my, my job in Eugene, Jerry Allen's now my boss. And right. so it was weird because he, he – he would have the same voice that I grew up listening to, oh, but yeah. he's chewing me out because I missed a break and then I forgot I screwed something up. Jerry's and, the best. <laughs> uh, and I like to what tell a run. I like to tell him at least at least twenty percent of the gray hairs on his head were, were because of me. Uh, but you brought it up. You grew up in Albany. Mm -hmm. That is Oregon State country. Did you yeah. grow up a Beaver fan? I was both, honestly. Both. Yeah, I was, okay. because my dad was a basketball coach, so we would get tickets to go down and see whoever, Jim Haney, Don Munson, whoever, was coaching the Ducks in basketball. But then my dad also knew Ralph Miller, and so we'd do a lot of – I always went to those camps. I'd go to Jim Haney's camp in the summer at Oregon. So I was never one or the other. I mean, of course, then I went to Oregon State, so you become more that way. But then I, then I end up working for the Ducks, which so wasn't see, a stretch. So what's that like? Because, I, I mean – I knew growing up in the state how how intense that that rivalry gets, and especially being being alumni. And now all of a sudden, look, you got to follow your passion. You got to follow your. Yeah. You got to follow also a job. Yeah. And now you're down in Eugene, probably well, wearing a shirt with a. Oh yeah, with, with all the, the gear the duck coming yep. through the O on it. Yep. And we would be in these. We'd on the road. We'd we'd fly in on a Friday, and then there'd be this big mixer with all the donors who would travel with the team. So we would always be talking, and they would always find out I went to Oregon State, and I'd always, and I'd always grab Rich Brooks because Rich went to Oregon State. Yes. And I'd say, Rich, come over here and explain why it doesn't matter, and he was always great about it. And so then I was having the same conversation last week with Mike Parker, who was the biggest duck honk in the world for years, 
and now he's the voice of the bees, legendary voice of the bees. So it is funny how people from here, you know, Mike's from down in the Eugene area, and of course Jerry's Southern Oregon, but how sometimes there can be a little bit of a crossover. So I'm not the only guy who's gone through that, but I have had some hard times given to me by beaver friends for being in the big duck photo. So let's go 1994 season real quick because um, I was was a freshman in high school then. You, this this team goes on this unbelievable run mm-hmm. from a season that started off terribly. Yeah, got smoked at Hawaii and 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 I think beaten pretty good at Washington State. They got beat by Washington State. I think they also got beat by Utah. Yep, that year too. Yep. And the Hawaii game was awful. But anyway, and so. So they make this incredible run, as you mentioned. They beat Washington. They beat Arizona. They mm-hmm. go on this run. All of a sudden, now they're they're in the Rose Bowl. Mm-hmm. I remember, as again, I grew up a an Oregon fan, still am. What it was like walking into that Rose Bowl. Oh. So I was very, very lucky that I got tickets. I was in the last row of the Rose Bowl. Um, there's 72 rows, I know, because I was in row 72. Um, but walking into that stadium and seeing Penn State in one end zone and seeing Oregon in the other. Yeah. As a broadcaster, what, what was that like? It was awesome. And that was one of those times when it was, I was glad I was a sideline reporter. And I always loved watching the game at field level. I know it's not a great place to watch a game. But being able to move around, I love being able to follow the ball and follow the line of scrimmage. And I could walk on the bench and nobody would care. And so, you know, the game... The, you know, the thing about the Rose Bowl, everybody says, is, you know, they put a brand new field in before every Rose Bowl game. So it's like brand new grass. And you, like you said, the end zones are painted perfectly. And, and then Kajana Carter rips off an 80-yard run on the first play from scrimmage for Penn State. And we're like, oh, okay, buzzkill. But they really – Ducks played really well in that game. That was a good Penn State team. Um, you know, missed field goal at the end of the front. I'm starting to think of all this stuff now. And um, so missed field goal and then a, a, a pass to the one. Yep. And then timeouts. Yep, exactly. <laughs> and then, but then I remember the third quarter, I think it was Kristen McLemore caught a pass right in front of me and landed like almost at my feet. He was actually out of bounds, but they called it a touchdown. Wilcox had a good t- a touchdown pass and they, who, you know, then here they are, they tied the game up and then it got a little bit out of control, but that was, that was a great experience. And I remember going out, I was kind of, so as a sideline guy, and this is not like something I'm, I was like a trendsetter, but I would always, always go out and get the coin flip. And the refs never, I just started doing it and they wouldn't stop me. So I just walk onto the field. And then as the ref was doing the coin flip, I, I would put the microphone under his arm as he was doing the flip. And I would get like, looks like that, you know, like, what are you doing? And that they would never stop me. So I do this at the Rose Bowl and William Shatner is out there. So I'm doing this to Shatner. And he's looking at his people like, who is this Yahoo? Because you have all these dignitaries, and I'm out there in my duck stuff, and I got the little microphone, and it's on ABC and Keith Jackson and the whole deal. And here I am on camera, microphone under William Shatner's arm, and Jerry and Jorgie are laughing like, just, he, I, they said, you got to just do it. So, okay, I'm going to do it. So we kind of push the uh, push the boundaries a little bit at times. Those are kind of the funny memories that people don't know about. William Shatner, Captain Kirk is there. He's like, Shatner. all you gotta do, all you gotta do is William, just go out, <laughs> right. flip the coin. He's like, what is this? You get out, you get, you know. And you he just was walk Grand out. Marshal of the Rose Bowl <laughs> Festival that year. <laughs> so let's fast forward it because you said you. So you're with Oregon mm-hmm. all the way up through the what the '98 season, '99, '99 season, that yeah. Sun Bowl year, mm-hmm. and then where do you go from there? I went, I, I, the Blazers um, needed a, they needed somebody to run Rip City Magazine to be the radio studio host. 
to be a TV features like uh, on camera person to run these feature shows that they had. A, there were a lot of different names for them in those days. And they approached, they had this job opening. And finally, I didn't know. I was just, and finally, one of the guys there came to me and said, why haven't you applied for this? And I said, I don't know. I mean, I'm just doing my thing. And I, and he said, well, do you want to? I said, yeah, sure. You're okay. You're hired. <laughs> so, okay. So I went upstairs and got hired and it, I did it largely because, well, lots of reasons, but um, it got me off waking up at four in the morning and, and all of a sudden it was like, wow, this is great. And I started doing more and immediate thing. Things were added WNBA team. Um, I got the T I simulcast TV and radio for the Portland fire for three years. Um, and then right at the end of their run, they put me in the play-by-play -play chair uh, and they moved out Pete Pranica, who now is the uh, TV voice of the Memphis Grizzlies, um, and doing a great job. And Pete was always terrific. I always felt bad about that because I was, I was there and, and behind him when he got, you know, he, he didn't get renewed and I got put into a spot, which was an awkward position for me to be in. I never wanted to get a job that way. Um, that's how it worked. But Pete did a great job, and he's now the toast of Tennessee. I mean, he's awesome down there with the job he does. So started down that road, and then we were off and running, and I continued to do a lot of different things, which is kind of what I did at every stop. And I always tell young people when they, they, want, they have questions about broadcasting or any of these things, especially these days. This is all pre-social media. Um, but do as many things as you can. And so I continued to be the editor of Rip City Magazine. I continued to do all the specials. I did the fifth quarter radio call-in show. I was doing everything I could. I never said no to anything. Speak to sponsors, speak at sales groups, and they're trying to close a deal. They'd bring me up at the end of it. And so I did. And then charity auctions and emceeing stuff, which I still do some of that. Um, it was just I liked it all, but I think it was valuable that I got to do everything. And even as a, when I was in college, I was a runner when CBS Sports and NBC would come up to do the playoffs. So I was at the finals in 90 and 92. In 92, I actually had the job at KXL. But in 91 as well, I would come up and be a runner or you know, they'd pay you a daily rate. And you just I would pull cable. I would run and get coffee. I would. Those are the things you kind of you have to do. So. While I say we, we joked around about not deserving our first jobs, and I didn't, you know, I don't think I could ever be egotistical enough to say that I did. I did work my butt off in about every end of the industry before I got that first break. So, um, and, and that made me appreciative of all those guys who do those jobs. So even now, um, I saw a guy yesterday who was our A2, our audio guy, um, for the Blazers for years. And I always took pride in knowing those guys, knowing their families, pointing them out on the air, appreciating their jobs because I did some of those jobs. And I think that's different from some guys. So it, that was a really valuable thing that I have a lot of appreciation. I was blessed to be able to do that. So here's what I'm really interested in because you, now, now you got the job. You, you were the Blazers play-by-play -play guy on TV. Kid from Albany. <laughs> yeah. Was, you know, son of a basketball coach. And, and look, my dad was a coach too, so I, I kind of know the feeling of just being – obsessed with sports, mm -hmm. be, wanting to, to, one, just be able to go to practice and, and hang out and stuff to talk to your dad about and then being a, you know, just a basketball guy. And I'm assuming you grew up as a Blazer fan. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had the, I had the chart in my bedroom. I'd listen to Sean's and write down the scores and I'd have a schedule and I wrote it out by hand. And I, every night I was that kid. You get all the Dairy Queen glasses. Oh, yeah. Every single one of them. So now, now you've got the job. You're, you're, you're sitting in the chair. You're not filling in. You're not 
temporary. This is your job. What was opening tip that season? What, what is that like sitting in that chair? That was at Utah. It was Blazers and Jazz, and that was a great rivalry then and a great Utah team, and you never won in Utah in those days. And Steve Jones, um, God rest his soul, was my partner. And Steve was the perfect first partner for me because he was brutal on me. I, and I, and I, 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 it was necessary, um, kind of in the way that, you know, when you got a compliment from Steve, and I still remember like one of my first compliments was, I guess it was that first year, Zach Randolph had a game winner at Golden State where he wrapped it around the backside of the basket. And I never wanted to freak out in those moments. I wanted to call it, but I didn't want to. And Steve on the plane hit my leg and said, kid, good call. And I said, okay. And and then you don't say anything back after that. Not to Steve. Um, But that was one of those memorable moments of that first year. But I do remember that first game at Utah. And I still, that's somewhere on YouTube or something. Because somebody sent me a clip of it. Oh, it was after Steve died. Um, somebody has sent me that and, and I ended up using a still frame of that just to do a quick social media post about what he meant to me, um, in, in the early going. And then Steve started working more national and he was on NBC's number one team with Costas and Walton and Jones. And so he would leave us all the time. So we'd go out on a road trip and he'd take off for a few games. And so they would move Mike Rice over from radio to TV and Mike and I had a really good chemistry and Mike was, um, a little different, you know, a homer. And, and Steve was never Homer. You know, if you watch Steve Jones growing up, never any bias. I mean, he just never got excited when the Blazers were playing well. He, and, and that bothered some people, but other people, purists, they loved it. Steve saw the game like, I mean, he always, he'd come to game with a pencil. Rice, if anything, he was extremely prepared. He did a lot of work. And I think people, so they were really different. And then they were doing courtside Monday night at that time. Steve Jones, Mike Rice. They didn't know how to get in, get to a break. They didn't know how to set the show up. They didn't know how to tease guests. They went over time. They drove Rich Patterson, the engineer, crazy. So they brought me in and said, you're now doing Courtside Monday Night with Rice and Jones, two legends that I grew up listening and watching. Um, and so then I'm referee in this match once a week. getting us. My job was no more than getting us into a break and setting up the next segment. And then I would and I'd just listen to those guys fight over a shooting guard from Orlando that nobody cared about. And I would try to direct it back to something that people cared about. But those were, uh, that was a good training ground too. So to work with both of those guys and to only have those two guys my entire time, that was very fortunate. There's a story that, that I love to tell. Um, my Bless my fiance. She's heard it a, a million times. She has to smile and nod and go, Justin's going to tell his Troy Aikman story. But I, I always tell the story because... You get into broadcasting, you get around a lot of athletes, and you're working. And I think it's tough for fans to kind of understand. Like, you're there, and you're working, and you're mm-hmm. trying to do a job. And, yes, there are elite, famous athletes there, but you're, you're working. And I don't, I don't know about you. I didn't get starstruck at very often. But one time I was, I was in Seattle, and I was at a Seahawks game, and it was the, the Fox game of the week. Mm-hmm. And Troy Aikman goes walking across – the press room. Now, I'm not a Cowboys fan. I didn't grow up a Troy Aikman fan, but he walked by and I was like, oh boy, that guy's in charge. Like the the, the presence of Troy the Aikman, yeah, like I, know, I, I, I got it. I see why that guy was the face of America's team 
for a decade in, in probably walks on water in Dallas. And it was just a handful of guys like that that I've been around. Is there anybody where you're, you're calling a game and all of a sudden, whether it was a, a coach or a player or, or somebody walked by and you were just like, whoa. You know, the, I'm like you in that I never, never probably got starstruck by much. I was fortunate to call some of Michael Jordan's, and I was around as a young reporter when they, I was in, at Chicago Stadium when they won the title in 92 and in the back of the press room sitting very near Jordan when he had the net around his neck and he's holding the trophy and nobody had noticed him yet. And I'm young, I'm 23 maybe, and I'm, I'm st sitting back there and just looking. I was definitely starstruck then. But once I started the job, I can't say that. I would say maybe at times um, at Madison Square Garden they would sit the Knicks broadcast team and the visiting team on the center court line across from the press table. Well, the Knicks then had the three, three or four seats next to their broadcast were their celebrity, big shot, A-list people would sit. So I was there when Philip Seymour Hoffman was there one night and I shook his hand and that was, I, could, I would get starstruck about that stuff. Yeah. One time we were in LA, we always flew into a separate FBO, not the airport. So you would walk in through the little building, and one time, and this is back when we didn't ride the team bus, we had gotten there early after a Lakers game, waiting to fly out, and it's, you know, it's 11.45, and I'm looking around, and, I, and, and, the, and the place is all kind of shut down, it's dark, and, I'm, and I, I'm looking around, and there's these cases sitting around with this logo on them, and I'm looking at these cases, and then a, a couple guys with long hair walk through, and I'm like, and I see a jet sitting out there. And then I look at the, the uh, logo closer, and it's Metallica. And so I'm sitting there, and I said, no. And I was a huge Metallica fan. And so I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, here comes James Hetfield and Lars Ulrich. And I'm like, and so I, and I just sat there, and I, they had just played, and I look it up, and they had just played a show at the Hollywood Bowl. And I didn't have, I didn't want to bother them. I never was that guy. So I didn't say anything. And I didn't have the iPhone then to do a selfie, you know, but I probably would have if, if I would have gotten the opportunity. I got starstruck by watching them walk by, Yeah. but not necessarily athletes as much. Um, but as far as broadcasters go, which is what you were talking about with Troy, not necessarily. I think the guys that I was attracted to like Mike Breen with the voice of the NBA, Mike's still a friend. And he, Mike was always no ego, such a great guy. Mike Tirico, um, I still remember when Lillard hit the famous shot in game six to beat the Rockets. Tirico's call is the one that gets played all the time, which is great. Ours, mine wasn't a great call anyway. It was okay. Bryce then jumped all over me. We, it wasn't one of our finer moments, but it was, it was fine. But after the game, and I had gotten to know Trico back in the Duck days. We did a game at Michigan State one time when Trico was young. It was a Thursday night game at Michigan State. Oregon played him, and I, and I really got to know Mike that night. So he kind of remembered me. I don't know that he really did. But so when he started doing NBA more and more, we would talk. And after that game ends, we're still kind of wrapping up. And I, I, I notice he comes, makes a beeline from his seat on ESPN to my side. What was your call like? What did you say? This is what I said. And that was just a guy with no ego who purely was loving this moment and wanted to share it with somebody he knew. And, and I would love to say Pierre, but I don't, I don't, Trico's, I think, one of the best there is. Um, but that was a really cool moment 
by a national guy yeah. who could have rolled out like I got the joint. Nobody talks to me. And there are a couple of guys like that. Um, but for the most part, those national guys that I got to know a little bit, Kevin Harlan, Tariko, Breen, certainly, uh, Ian Eagle, uh, Ian is a terrific guy. And by the way, when I, my departure from the Blazers, the day that happened, all those guys called me, which was really humbling. Cause number one, I thought, how did you even know about it? Number two, you're taking the time to call me on this. So that part, I mean, you know, I get emotional when I talk about that because I was in the garage and to have those guys who were massive heroes of mine, as well as guys I worked around, take the time to do that. Man, it was it was it was amazing. So that's kind of an answer to your question no, that went great. off and off ramp, which I tend to do. But um, so I guess I would say that as your Aikman moment was you're a guy who's saying, OK, that's a guy who's separate from everybody else. The guys I was attracted to were the guys who had no ego and treated you as an equal, even if you weren't. And I wasn't their equal. So we're in the middle of, of this, this blazer run, and the organization decides to make a change. Now, I remember in, in being in radio and being in media for as long as I've been, Everybody always says, ah, you're never really in media until you get fired. <laughs> I heard that too. I, I, and I heard it all the time, and I laughed, and I laughed, and I laughed until the day I got fired mm -hmm. from, from my dream job. So I'm sure you've been asked about it uh, you know, half a dozen ways, and I don't want to belabor the point, but just when, when that happened, kind of take me through your, your mindset in, in where, where you were at that place? Um, well, it was, first of all, it was completely out of left field. And I know people can say that. And then people say, well, you weren't really paying attention then if you think it was. But we had come off, you know, and Mike and I weren't egotistical, but we had come off a, a run where for whatever reason that last year, which was 16, was, you know, we were given more like accolades and national attention than we had ever gotten before. There was a list put out by a you know a couple of notable websites and ranked us top five broadcast duos in the NBA and we both had a year left on our contract and um, I had I had no clue and I'm somebody who kind of expects that stuff and, and I shouldn't be but I I operate that way it kind of motivates me um, so no that was a definite shocker and I I know it was a shocker to the guys that had to ultimately tell me mm -hmm. too even though um, they, had to, they had to kind of uh, own that. Um, I was sad to see, I, I'm still, you know, Chris McGowan is a great guy, and I, to see him as beaten up over this like he was, and it really wasn't him, uh, made me feel bad, and I, I wanted to say something at the time, but I think people know, and, you know, it's, it's, it's okay. And, and I said at the time, and I still feel this way, there was never bitterness about it. I was honored to have done it, um, and people, I think, look at that and go, yeah, okay, you're trying it. But that's just, that's not how I think. I think that heartbreaking, but never blaming anybody or angry or for me, it was like, okay, I guess this is ending. My heart is broken because that's been my team since I was five years old, you know, mm -hmm. and my dad knew Jack Rams and we'd come to the camps. And so then later that day, like I mentioned, the other guys start to call I'm in the garage. I'm just stunned. You know, I'm, I'm not sure what to do. I'm just kind of like, you got to be kidding me. But all these people are calling. And then all these other, 
you know, a couple of other people have called other teams who had flirted with me a little bit for four or five years. All right, let's go. Come on, do our, you know, and I said, no, no, this is, and honestly, I think the reason why it never felt good, and it even happened again the next summer, that was my team. I'm yeah. not doing another team. And I can't say that I never will. I don't think so, but it just never would have felt right. Um, and I was really fortunate to have had a, I had a year left, so I didn't have to go into scramble mm -hmm. mode that night to protect and take care of my family. So I was, I was really fortunate it, for all the ways it could have happened, you know, s you slip and say something, you know, that's lives forever on YouTube, which I think is every broadcaster's like kind of nightmare scenario, which I don't think would have happened, but you never know, um, for all the ways it could have happened for it to happen this way. And I've got a strong faith too. So I feel like these things all happen and there's all a reason they do. And I, I feel like that. I feel like my perspective was changed. I feel like I'm a better dad now. I feel like I'm a better husband now, a better friend now to, to people in my life. And I have a really great group of friends. And these guys were phenomenal when all this stuff happened. Cause I look, and I would also look around me and say, look at how many worse things are happening to people we know than this. So when people were leaving flowers on our driveway, the day I get, I'm serious and I appreciate it. Uh, it was like, take these to the people who are yeah. needing it, not me. Um, but I appreciated the gestures and all of the reach out by the fans and the fact that it continues now and it's been three years and I still get it on Twitter and stuff and I appreciate it so much from those people, even people that don't think I read their stuff, I do. So <clears throat> you, you said no with other teams. Was it immediate? You just Was, was there ever a no, time? No, one, one of them wasn't immediate. One of them there was a yeah. dance. So, that, went, that lingered into the next summer, and it, it just didn't uh, – uh, I didn't want to uproot my family, and I would have had to. And, and I, that one was – yeah, that one was a tougher call, but at the end of the day, um, I'm, I'm glad I didn't do it. So now let's fast forward because I, I got tons and tons of baseball stuff that I do want to get to. And, <laughs> and trust me, we, we – this... In part two of our seven-part <laughs> series. But here, here's the thing – and. I've had to, we've been doing this podcast for, uh, I think, a couple of months, and I'm used to tight 15. I know. Get reset, let everybody know who it is, and now all of a sudden, like, oh, wait, no, I got all this time, <laughs> I, and we, we, we got, we, Sorry. we can let, we can I, and let I it. And my, my answers to your questions are not short, so well, I apologize it, for that. It's, it's, they've been quality, quality answers so far. Um, so let, let's talk about the Portland Diamond Project, mm -hmm. because... Um, I know that one day somebody didn't just wake up and go, hey, baseball in Portland would be a good idea. But to have an, an organization, a name, a movement that you guys have started, take me to the, the origins of what inevitably became the, the Portland Diamond Project. Well, Craig Cheek, who is the director, um, you know, Craig was at Nike for 26 years, 27 years, and ran North America, ran China, fantastic. And I knew Craig through a friend, and I was poking around. I, sh I shot a pilot for a show we pitched to Discovery, more outdoor TV stuff. It was really fun, and I was just, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was poking around. And then Craig called. I actually ended up at Craig's house one night when he was doing a movie. He was kind of doing a they're working on doing these movies, and it was kind of an investor pitch at his house. And I had a friend invite me, and I said, sure. So I went, and then one of the producers of another guy that I know 
knew one of the guys, I know this is a long story, knew a guy there. And so anyway, there was a reason why. I was kind of like, okay, now there's a reason why I'm here. So that's where Craig and I really first met face-to-face, but we didn't talk about baseball then. We talked about movies and TV. And then he called me soon after and said, let's go have lunch. So I went and had lunch, and he said, this is what I'm thinking. I've done some poking around. I am kind of in my head start to have an idea about this baseball thing. And my first thought was, okay, been tried before, but okay. And then we had another conversation and then we had another. And I know I'm just, I'm, I'm going over like six months really fast. But then we started building out a team and we started going, okay. And the more I was around him and saw his confidence and the confidence of those around him and the team we were starting to build, the more I started to realize, well, maybe this could happen. And then we started to look at the timeline of baseball, where it's at, and, you know, versus maybe where it was the last time when you had one team, which had been absorbed by MLB, and you had one shot to get it. Whereas this time, you had a couple of teams struggling. You had the talk of expansion. Expansion's kind of in the collective bargaining agreement. You got a commissioner now who's a little more progressive in the way he goes about things. It maybe doesn't move at the glacial pace that baseball is, is known for. And so... We started doing it. And, you know, the, the the hats and the funny, we didn't set out to sell merchandise. We, when, when, when we were putting together some initial investors and Craig had signed Russell Wilson at Nike and Russell's a big baseball guy and Craig and I drove up to Seattle one night and met with Russell and his agent. And, I mean, he was, he was, said, I'm in in the first five minutes. We had all this pitch set up for him. And he just said, I'm in. What do I need to do? And so from there, we have his press conference back here. Big blowout. He's, and he, we had to put him in a T-shirt. So we make this shirt, kind of just a basic shirt. And we make a hat. We grab a 1901 Portland Pioneers logo, which is what this is. And, and we, had, we had done some history lessons, you know, to make sure that we knew all this stuff. And then he shows up and has all the gear on that everybody wants it. So we start making gear. My point in bringing that up is... When you can give a movement a brand, I think it really helps. Yeah. And that's what this has done for us. It's made it to where when we go to Eugene, when I was in Bend a few weeks ago, and you have the hat on, and I, in fact, was driving our van, I was chased down like four or five times by, a couple of times by construction workers who just, I had to track you down and just talk to you for a minute. I saw the van go by. The fact that they know the logo, it really helps. And if this is going to work, it's going to be because of, the fans and the support and the people. And again, this is my area. I think we're, Craig too. Craig grew up in Vancouver, went to Washington State, worked at Nike. The fact that this isn't an outside group who picked your city because it met some certain criteria and checked some boxes and now they're going to come and try to land their business yeah. here. And it was, it was guys who were homegrown and who want to see this happen here. And we wanted it to be a grassroots effort organically put together by the people and that's how we've been all along, and we're true to that. So some of it has come off as hokey probably when we say, you know, for Portland, for Oregon, you know, by Oregon, of Oregon, of Portland. Um, and I always say Oregon because I want everybody outside the area to understand that this isn't just a Portland thing. And that's what I said in Eugene the other night and in Corvallis and in Bend and everywhere else and, and southwest Washington as well. This is a regional thing, and Portland is underserved uh, in this area and large enough to support. And in terms of those questions about 
we got early on. Do you think it can be supported? I have no doubt it'll be supported. I look at the amazing story of the timbers and the thorns and then the following the Blazers get as well. There's no doubt in my mind there's room for baseball here. Well, in I, I've always, growing up as, as a kid who played baseball in Oregon and, and playing Legion ball in Oregon and, and seeing and just knowing the, the culture of baseball up and down. What Legion team did you play uh, for? The Roseburg Dr. Stewart's. Hey, I played in tournaments at Roseburg. Yeah. yeah. Roseburg Dr. Stewart's at, at Legion Field. Yes, so, I yeah. played it there many times. Were you a, were you an Albany Rocket? I was a Rocket. <laughs> we played the Rockets. Albany Rockets. Yep. The the, uh, the Richie's Market Man in Corvallis. That was a, they had a when I was in school. Their Richie's Market was a machine. <laughs> they and they put a lot of guys in. They, a lot of those guys got drafted. That was that was that was amazing. But the Roseburg, Klamath Falls, Klamath Falls Falcons, man, and the Medford towns. Mustangs. Yes, that was big a, baseball. I love that old heated three way rivalry in the area four. The old Klamath Falls wooden ballpark, Kiger Stadium. What a great. I loved that place, and we played there quite a bit. And we played at the old Civic in Eugene before it burned down. Um, and they'd pipe in some organ music and stuff to make you feel like it was the big leagues. Those are great ballparks. And this is what I'm talking about. Yeah. Well, and, and that's why I brought it up, because I, I grew up in, in baseball culture in Oregon and playing everywhere from Portland, as you mentioned, at Klamath Falls and Bend and, and, and all over the state. And so I've always known that, that baseball is, has got a... a a hold mm -hmm. here in, in the Pacific Northwest and in Oregon. But were you even a little bit surprised as to how much support you guys have yeah. gotten? Yeah. Because it doesn't seem like it's just the, the baseball hardcore people like no. me. It seems like it's really becoming uh, a more and more mainstream. You know, and everybody, when you talk to them, everybody's got a baseball story and everybody has, and it has a certain romantic side. I know that's cliche, but it does. It's different in that. Um, but yeah, I'm surprised. I'm surprised that it caught fire like it did, uh, even in the early going. We start selling the hats, and then, you know, Jen Burley, who's our social media, um, she does most of our social media stuff. She, people start taking selfies of the hat at a major league park last summer, early on, and so she lobs out. You know, says, "I wonder how long it would take to get a some of our gear in every major league ballpark, all of them." It took 24 days. We had it. And that was pretty cool to see that. And, and again, so people know that, you know, the proceeds, the profits from our gear goes to Friends of Baseball. We're not looking to make money off mm -hmm. this stuff, pay bills, but not make money. And so that's been a really cool thing, too, to be able to get involved in um, with some of these groups. And Friends of Baseball is a great group. It, baseball has that. It's just different. It has, and I think people who are baseball people, and as you said, people who aren't necessarily baseball people get that. And they don't get that this is a great region for baseball. And I know that Pat Casey and Oregon State um, really put it on the map when they started winning titles. Um, but downstate, you mentioned it, uh, Roseburg, Klamath Falls, Medford, and, and you even go to Bend, and uh, Richie Sexton's over there now, and he's a fan of the project. And we got Dale Murphy, who's from Portland, and he's an advisor for us, and Harold Reynolds has been fantastic. And so many people and so much rich history, baseball history, in Portland, and then you couple that with the best weather in the country during the baseball season is in the Northwest. Late, you know, long summer nights, and so there are so many times that I would be doing a courtside broadcast on a Monday night at the Rose Garden Moda Center, and I'd walk out afterwards and look around on a beautiful evening over there, and there'd be nothing going on and really nothing to do, and just go, man, I wish there was a game to go to. It's a perfect night. So it's interesting going back to our conversation earlier about about being starstruck. Two 
two occasions of people that you mentioned just now, not Russell Wilson, but I was covering the Seahawks training camp. And the first time I saw Sierra walk by, mm -hmm. starstruck, <laughs> yeah. starstruck yeah. Um, on that one. I remember being in the middle of it. I was in the middle of a radio segment and, and I had, I just stopped and I go, Sierra just walked by. And my, <laughs> my co-host looked at me like, okay. And she's awesome. Uh, and, and she's been a, a, a big part of this. Huge this is part. not just like, not just no. with, she's a, because we said, okay, are, are you, okay, you, Russell's going to take a, you're going to take a slot with Sierra. And he said, no, 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 she wants her own. And so we talked to her and she said, no, no, I, I want to be female, African-American. I know the numbers. I've looked at it ownership wise. I, this is what I want to do. And she constantly is like, Hey, what's going on? What's the latest? What's the news? And we, we're in constant communication. It's not like it's they're just a you know, threw some money down and went and did their own thing. They're very involved. And again, she's been, she's been tremendous. Jen was up there at his golf tournament and he's hops behind the van wheel. You know, I mean, he's just, he does everything you think Russell Wilson is as good as you think he is. It's completely authentic. He is that good. And he is that great a guy. And so is his agent, Mark Rogers. Fantastic people. The, the other occasion is, uh, and I don't know if you're in the same boat as me, but growing up, even though the Mariners were right up the road, we had TBS. Mm -hmm. So I'm a lifelong Atlanta Braves fan. Yep. And, and of course, I was, uh, was about seven years old when Dale Murphy was the best player on the worst team. Yep. So Dale Murphy was, was my guy. His name was in my glove. I had the poster up. And uh, last year when we were doing – uh, the bridge, and when you guys had the uh, the rendering of the stadium, mm -hmm. we were lucky enough. And to my producer's credit, I said, "Get me Dale Murphy," and I introed the segment, and Dale's on the phone, and I became seven years old again, yeah. and I stuttered and stammered through that entire thing. But another guy, because I remember when you grow up in Oregon. There, there weren't a lot of people, no. famous people from here. And I remember watching TBS and the Braves were on. They were America's favorite team. You know, they were in last place then. Things changed when I got, when in 1991, which was a great run. But at that time, they were terrible. But Dale Murphy was always an all-star. He was always the best player. And and I remember my dad saying, yeah, he's, he's from Portland. He's, right. he's from here. And it blew my mind. And now he's a huge part of your guys' project. Well, and he, when I talked to him, I called him on the phone. This was, I don't know, a year and a half ago or so when he was first wanted to kind of get involved. And I, so I, I had a little bit of that with him <laughs> because of the very reason you talk about. If he had played for another team, I probably wouldn't have. But like you, I grew up watching the Braves. And so we start, and I get on the phone with him and I said, hey, Dale, it's, you know, Mike Barrett here. And we're just, he said, yeah, he said, you know, and as we talk, he goes, my parents live in Hillsboro. His dad has since passed. And he says, um, do you think you could sign an, like sign something and send it to my parents? Because they're huge Blazer fans and they miss you on the broadcast. And I said, Dale's asking me for an autograph. Are you kidding me? So it was, it was but it was one of those things where. And then he came to town. He was in town a couple weeks later. We met for lunch. And I remember it was, and then since then, I've been around him a lot more. But one of the great times has been after we're done, and I hate doing this to guys, but I, they, some people do it to me, so it's okay. But I start talking, do you remember that game on, on, you know, on 4th of July when Rick Camp hit the home run in the 17th inning? And, and, and there was the, you know, he's like, how do you remember all that? I said, because I was a TBS kid. And only TBS kids remember what that means because – 
we had just had gotten cable TV mm -hmm. and we didn't have that many channels. And after the Andy Griffith show or during a rain delay when the Andy Griffith show would come on, then you'd get Braves games. And for us, it was after school because we're on the West Coast. So you'd come home from school and there'd be a Braves game just starting. And I would watch every one of them. I knew all those. And I was quote, I'll be quoting teammates and stats. Oh, yeah. And I know he gets it all the time. But imagine if that had been the case today in terms of the marketing opportunity for those players. Back then, I don't know if they realized it in terms of how many people got to know those guys because yeah. they run TBS. Glenn Hubbard and oh, Bruce yeah. Benedict. Pasquale and Perez. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> All of, uh, Horner, Ozzie Virgil. Bob Horner. And, and, and Murph <laughs> has great Bob Horner stories, by the way. Because Horner always looked to me like he looked like he was a pro wrestler a little bit. <laughs> he had the curly hair and he was bigger. And anyway. We could go on and on about Braves talk. Next time we'll talk. That, that, that's, that's, that's for part two. <laughs> right. um, but I do want to, while we're wrapping up here, so as somebody who is, is obviously a supporter, more than just wearing the hat, yeah. wearing the shirt, you know, hashtag MLB to PDX, <laughs> right. what, what can, can fans do? What can people in Portland do to be proactive? Or is it just kind of no. in MLB's hands? No, I know. It, 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 I mean, that's the funny thing is this is so, is so complex. And it's going great. And I know everybody says, well, when? You know, and then we'll have a big announcement. And we've become a little bit of a victim of our own success in terms of the notoriety and the PR and the fan, because every time we like yesterday, we had a big announcement about a, a you know, a harmony agreement with AFL CIO, which was really cool. But when we announce, Hey, we've got an exciting announcement coming up tomorrow. If you're not announcing that you have a team, people are like, Hmm, really? <laughs> so expectations granted are where they should be. We love that, but it is, it is a complex process, but I will say it's going very, very well. Nothing ever goes as fast as you want it to. But for the challenges we thought we would have in front of us, everybody said, are you kidding me? That government's never going to the city, that blah, blah, blah. City's been great. State officials have been great. Mayor Wheeler has been great. He was great yesterday. In fact, yesterday, probably when he spoke about us at the press conference, which was was as complimentary as he has been yet, and as much as he has said publicly. But we've gotten to know him through a lot of meetings with the city, not a lot, some, and, and state representatives. And we went to Eugene the other day and met with the mayor of Eugene, met with some state reps, did the same thing in Corvallis. And it's not, and all of them are like, what do you want from me? Why are you talking to me? Well, no, we just want to let you know about it. We want to talk to you about it so that when you get asked about it, you have answers. And can we do anything for you? Can we answer any questions? So we've tried to come at it from a really humble standpoint. And, but we, again, the fans and the support have continued to affirm us and let us know we're doing the right thing. Just keep grinding. And that's what it is at times. And then you'll have these little mini dam breaks where all of a sudden, you know, you have another great meeting with somebody and, or you have a conversation with somebody at the MLB level and we've tried to be very respectful to the uh, you know Major League Baseball office in New York, where we have been, where we are going again soon. Um, and they're terrific, and they have been really supportive. And we've told them before every major announcement, hey, we're going to have an announcement. Just want to let you know. And they say, thank you for letting us know. Uh, so it is an interesting dance, both on the team side and on the ballpark side. But we are confident where it is right now. Is it? Uh, competition with 
existing MLB teams? Is it a competition within new markets that you keep hearing about uh, popping up? Or is it simply just a, a matter of, of timing? I think probably more on the timing side. Yeah. I don't think we look at it as competition. I think what we do, and I was asked this even in New York at one point, what we've tried to do is is create a healthy option for the commissioner to say, because he said on record, you know, in terms of timing, I need to get Oakland and Tampa, those situations settled before I expand. And so what we have said is, great, we're fans of those teams. Get it settled. But if you can't, here we are. And we're going to continue to just go down our road and be an option for relocation if it should need to be. And if not, expansion comes, here we are, we're ready to go. So with the decision that they made about Tampa Bay and how they're going to be splitting games between Tampa Bay and now Montreal, is that good? Does it matter at all? Well, I think it's still a concept. Still largely. a concept, yeah. I think that, and I don't know if that will ever happen. Gotcha. Uh, I don't know how that would happen. <laughs> I've talked to some who've said, I don't know how that would ever happen. So, But you know what? I think cer- certain things, and I used to say this to fans around NBA trade deadline time, some things are put out to Get a reaction. Because that's when fans are the most reasonable, by the way. Yeah. It's trade deadline <laughs> oh, time. Of course they are, yes. You know, I worked the trade machine, and this trade works. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and and I always would say, and I'd have a, I'd have a friend call and say, well, hey, so-and-so is trading. I said, now, who do you think leaked that? Well, why would he leak that? Well, look, he gets fan reaction, and oftentimes things are just put out to get a reaction. I think, and even in this case, certain things are. I think that. Tampa has had a very difficult time getting land. Oakland has had a very difficult time getting land. The fact that we have land um, and have the money lined up and have a, a fan base that looks to be, you know, is, is rabid and wanting baseball puts us in a great situation. Um, and again, we're not over our skis. We're taking it day by day, but we are continuing. This is not something we're doing in our spare time. This is the only thing we're doing. Yeah. Craig grinds on this constantly. I do too. We, we're on the phone until midnight some nights discussing things we're on the phone with our attorney in new york who's phenomenal and i mean our team is so great it's been a blast and and i just know that we wouldn't have all been brought together to do this and have everything go as well as it has and then have failure be an option which it's not this may be an an unfair question but i'm gonna throw it out there if the concept of the portland diamond project is top of the first the Portland baseball, professional baseball club, whatever name you guys choose, by the way, I'm for the pioneers, um, throwing out the first pitch of opening day is the bottom of the ninth. Where would you say we yeah. are right now? That's a good question. Um, you know, we, a couple months ago, we referenced it being halftime. Um, but I think that was more based maybe financially on at halftime and what we had to, had to finally had to kind of get done, had to put on our, our checklist it's hard to say because in, in one day, a decision could be made that could cause an avalanche. Yeah. And so we just don't know when that's going to be. As far as our preparedness, because, there's, yeah, there's two sides of this. So as far as how we are prepared, fifth, bottom of five maybe, I would say. I, that's a tough, it's a tough question, and there's a lot of answers to it. But I, if, if I needed to give one, that's probably it. But that's about where we expected it to be, too. Yeah. 
we've come a long way from where we started. And I know everybody, you announce it, you think, okay, we're going to get this, we're going to get a team. But you, you look at how long it has taken some markets to get teams, and it's scary. So I don't like to think about those situations because it is, it is just a complex process. Last thing, sure. and as I mentioned, I'm for the Pioneers. Okay. 1866 Pioneer Baseball Club. Yeah, there you go. Started in Portland. I, I love the way the name flows, the Portland Pioneers. I think it's great. I'm not going to ask you about what name you would prefer because I'm sure Gosh. you would prefer any name at this point yes. as long as the baseball team is People on the field. People used to ask, what team do you want? Yeah. Whatever can get here first. <laughs> but yes. you have, you've kind of become the public face yeah. of, of the Diamond Project, so I'm sure when people either tweet at you or, or talk to you or see you in public, <laughs> ev- I'm sure everybody's got an idea. Has there been one that's been so weird and out there that you go, wow, that's interesting? Yeah, there are a couple. Um, historically speaking... Pioneers, I like. Um, you know, a lot of people say Mavericks, and I like that too for what they were. Mm-hmm. And it's a great story. It's a great documentary. Um, but then there's there's also part of me goes, I wouldn't mind doing something that hasn't been done before too. Um, and so there are some conceptual names out there that are, you know, it is baseball, so it's not nothing against it. It's not you know, roller lacrosse where you can throw a, you know what I mean? When those names are always the power or something, you know, there's something yeah. different. It's singular largely. Um, but if you can be kind of Was there a lacrosse team like the Lumberjacks? There was J-A-X. A yes. Um, yeah, so there are some names like that that are, but we've done some really cool concepts right down to jerseys, colors, home away, alternatives that at some point we're going to bust out, but we just aren't doing it yet. But and we don't know too. I mean, if it is a team that relocates um, and maybe has a great history, maybe you keep that. You just don't know. It just depends on the situation. But I will say this: when that day comes, we want the fans to have a huge say in what that name will be. So quickly, website, yes, social media. Where, you asked where, that. Where, where can people go? Yes. So it is meaningful, and we're not trying to sell you anything. But to get people to sign that petition, and all you have to do is go on the website portlanddiamondproject.com, sign up. Because we're get, we're going to close in on fifty thousand, and that speaks loudly to New York, because a lot of those people back there couldn't find Portland on a map. It's just the way it is. And I used to say that in the NBA, and it just really is not people in baseball, but just people in that area or in the East Coast. So I think something like that would speak volumes, and that's why we kind of started to do that. Um, it's it's probably, and then people will ask the next question: Well, where can I give season ticket deposits? Because we get that a lot. This would probably be the step before that. You know, in terms of getting people to sign the petition and signing up for the, like a, an email blast, which gives you all the latest news, and it's kind of cool. It's not, and again, it's not overwhelming. It's not more one th- one more thing in your inbox. So that's one thing that I think fans could really do if they care about this: sign up, get your friends to sign up. Um, you know, and and it, it, I'm not trying to sell gear, but it does go to charity. So uh, get some gear too if you want to. But the big thing is sign the petition. And when you're out and about, we're at a lot of different. Um, public gatherings, you know, we're always, we've been, have a huge presence at First Thursday downtown. We've been at the various street fairs, parades, Tiger Balloon Festival. We're kind of everywhere. And so at those things, we, we've got a great group of guys that are out there and some volunteers that are helping out too, guys and girls doing a great job. And sign the petition there or go online and do it. It really helps her come by the store, which is right next to uh, Providence Park. Mike Barrett, appreciate it, man. This is a you. lot of fun. Yeah, a lot of fun. And I was a little longer than... You had planned, but that's what usually happens. I, 
I'm, I'm a little longer winded than some. You can tell when you get a broadcaster and you put him in as a guest. That's exactly right. You better right. clear your schedule. Yes. But you know what <laughs> What I appreciated is, I, you know, I'm not quite saying I got a day off, but. Right. If we had I, a little beer, sit- beer sitting here, it would just be a, an evening in a bar. <laughs> exactly right. So much fun. Really yeah, appreciate it. Thanks again. We'll do it again. That'll do it for this week's Portland Diamond Project podcast. Be sure to head to PortlandDiamondProject.com to sign the petition and show your support for MLB to PDX.